The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 39, The Battle of Legnano. This week's episode takes us to the southern side of the Italian Alps, around 15 miles northwest of the modern Italian city of Milan. It's quite tricky to determine what was going on before the Romans began to document things, but when they did, they would tell how this area of Europe and Italy was occupied by Gauls. The name of the Gauls is a collective name given by the Romans to those Celtic peoples of various tribes living to the north and beyond the Italian peninsula. In the eyes of the Romans, the Gauls lived both on the near side and beyond the Alps. The tribes on the near side were collectively referred to as the Chisalpine Gauls and the tribe that occupied the area that is now recognisable as the modern Italian region of Lombardy were called the Insubri. The Insubri of the late 1st millennium BCE occupied an area that has since been identified as an archaeological area associated with the Golosecca culture, whose sites have been excavated since the 19th century. It is difficult to determine when and how the neighbouring cultures of the Celts, the Ligurians and the Etruscans influenced the emerging Insubri, or to what degree any of them were ancestral to them. The Insubri appear to have established the city of Milan in or around the year 390 BCE. It would not be long before the Roman Republic, based in the city of Rome, further south on the Italian peninsula, would begin to expand its influence and by the 3rd century BCE this would bring them into close contact with the lands of the Insubri. With the tension between the Carthaginians and the Romans becoming more intense, the Romans wanted to increase their influence to empower themselves and this would come at the expense of the lands of the Insubri which were consumed by the Romans during the 220s BCE. The Insubri king, Viridumarus, was killed and the city of Milan was captured by the Romans and called Mediolanum. The Insubri lands were distributed among wealthy Romans and so when the Carthaginian warrior Hannibal crossed the Alps in order to invade the Roman Republic, the Insubri were happy to assist him in crossing their territory. Ultimately, the Carthaginian invasion proved to be unsuccessful, and so the lands of what would become Lombardy would remain Roman. 
the Romans would concentrate some effort into securing the area and the city of Mediolanum. During the later centuries of the Roman Republic and the earlier centuries of the Roman Empire, Mediolanum was protected by walls and became a very important city, particularly a centre for education. The Roman Emperor Diocletian was very well known as the man who made a major political change to the Roman Empire by splitting into two administrative halves, East and West. When he did this, he also moved the Western Roman capital from Rome to Mediolanum, and the city was further improved as a consequence. When Emperor Constantine became the emperor, he would issue an edict from the city granting Christians the freedom to practice their religion within the Roman Empire and the city would receive its first bishop. When the Western Roman Empire began to weaken, Mediolanum's location made it vulnerable to Germanic attacks from the north. So the capital moved back south again to the cities of Rome and then Ravenna. The movement of the capital was mainly due to the invasions of the Visigoths at the beginning of the 5th century, but these lands would also be invaded by the Huns, the Ostrogoths and the Lombards during the middle centuries of the first millennium. When the Western Roman Empire fell, the Italian peninsula became a kingdom that was initially ruled by a barbarian called Odoacha, before becoming the Ostrogothic Kingdom until the invasions of the Eastern Roman Empire in the 6th century eliminated the Ostrogothic Kingdom, bringing the region of what would become Lombardy back under Roman rule. Later in the 6th century, and the Lombards emerged from Central Europe and pushed the Byzantines out of Mediolanum and would spend many years battling with them over all of the lands of the Italian peninsula. The Lombards captured the Roman city of Ticinum in 572 and they would go on to turn this into their capital city of Pavia, with this particular Lombard territory in northern Italy being referred to as Langobardia Major. The Christian nature of the Lombards was reflected in the construction of churches and monasteries. In 756, the papal states were established in central Italy. The papacy had taken control of its own political affairs due to the decline of the Byzantines and now the Pope was a secular leader as well as a religious one. Due to the concerns the Pope had about Lombard intentions within papal lands, they struck up a friendship with the Carolingians who required validation from the Pope to be acknowledged as the true royal family of the Franks. Under their ruler Charlemagne, the Franks invaded Langobardia Major, besieged Pavia and displaced the Lombard king Desiderius. The Pope would give Charlemagne the honorific title of Holy Roman Emperor. With the Byzantines gone from Italy, the actual Roman Emperor was no longer any help for the Pope. So the man who was protecting the Pope, Emperor Charlemagne, was invited to be the real Roman Emperor in the eyes of the papacy. 
Charlemagne felt indifferent about this title, however. For him, it had little necessity. Although there was a Holy Roman Emperor, there was no Holy Roman Empire, at least not yet. After Charlemagne's lifetime, the vast Frankish Empire that had been established through diplomacy and conquest would be split up and distributed to the male heirs, as was Frankish tradition. Charlemagne's empire would eventually need to be split into three, East Francia, Middle Francia and West Francia. East Francia would become the origins of the country of Germany, while West Francia would become the origins of the country of France. Middle Francia's original realm would be reduced to the lands of northern Italy and would become the origins of the country of Italy. The Holy Roman Empire The Kingdom of Germany was a very difficult kingdom to govern. A lot of the territories were within the kingdom due to Charlemagne's conquests, so they still had a very independent outlook on their affairs. Often the German kings would not always provide a good level of support to the territories on their eastern fringes, so these realms could often feel abandoned to their own fate. So it would take a strong king in order to take control of the kingdom and prevent it from breaking apart. German dukes would elect their monarch and in 919 they elected Henry the Fowler, the Duke of Saxony. The Germans would always have problems with the incursions of the Magyars from Hungary to their east and Henry the Fowler defeated them at the Battle of Riada in 933, earning the respect of his peers, so much so that he was able to ensure that his son became his heir. Henry's son would become Otto I, and he would continue his father's work in trying to unite the German kingdom. Otto would show a commanding attitude to kingship, using nepotism to keep his highest-ranking officials loyal. His great victory over the Magyars at the Battle of Lechfeld enabled him to be viewed upon as a great Christian military commander against a pagan warrior society. The Magyars had terrorised many lands of Western Europe, so Otto's victory was highly celebrated and ended the Magyar invasions. Otto extended his influence to include the Kingdom of Italy. The Pope was John Twelfth, and he was quick to offer Otto the title of Holy Roman Emperor in return for an understanding about which territories belonged to who. John did not trust Otto though, and he was plotting against him, which caused Otto to get him replaced as the Pope. This marked a shift in the balance of power between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, which would continue for generations with both parties attempting to demonstrate a superiority over the other, pitting religion against secularism. What was becoming apparent during this period is that the Pope could benefit from the support of a good Holy Roman Emperor, and the Holy Roman Emperor could benefit from the support of a good 
Pope. Sometimes the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor did not see eye to eye. The Pope was the man to appoint the Holy Roman Emperor, normally a king of Italy or Germany, and only at such a time when the Pope felt ready to do so, meaning that there could be long periods with no Holy Roman Emperor. Some of the kings who did not favour or who were not favoured by the Pope would attempt to put forward their own papal candidate in order to receive validation from the head of the Christian church and rule with the divine right of kings. It would be a lot easier for kings to elect local bishops, however, but this could lead to a fracturing of the Roman Catholic Church as the Pope believed that bishops should be selected by the clergy and not by the king. This led to something called the Investiture Controversy in the 11th century where the Pope Gregory VII challenged the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV's position on the secular appointment of bishops. Pope Gregory declared that only the Pope could make ecclesiastical appointments. Henry sold church lands off for profit, something called simony, and Gregory excommunicated him. Henry decided to pay a penance by walking to Canossa and appealing for absolution from the Pope, and so the Pope revoked his excommunication. People across the lands were taking sides in the ideological war between Henry and the Pope. Opponents to Henry put forward an anti-king in Germany, while Henry supporters put forward an anti-pope. The tension would outlast both the reigns of Henry and Gregory. Even though the secular and ecclesiastical successors would look to resolve the differences during the 12th century, there still existed tensions between the supporters of both sides at more localised political levels. The Lombard League Since the 10th century, when the German king Otto the Great took the throne of Italy, the Kingdom of Italy had been ruled by German kings. Many Italians would begin to resent German rule and the investiture controversy only served to push them towards the Pope. The northwesternmost area of the Kingdom of Italy was the March of Verona and the area of Italy was to be ruled by the Dukes of Bavaria after Otto's conquest. Bavaria was the bordering German duchy to the north of the March of Verona. The March would remain under the control of its German neighbours throughout the 11th and 12th centuries until the formation of the Lombard League in 1167. The political change of 1167 sees its roots in the behaviour of the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick I, known to history as Frederick Barbarossa. While the complex politics of Germany and Italy were becoming tangled and untangled in turn over and over, the city of Milan had become quite independent-minded and was looking to expand its influence. This was a concern for Frederick who felt it necessary to bring Milan to heel. 
So he destroyed some of the lands of the Milanese before he had to move on to bigger issues such as the Normans in southern Italy and domestic affairs. So Milan started expanding its influence again in spite of Frederick's actions. The cities allied to Frederick struck back at Milan again until Frederick left once again and then the Milanese just attacked its neighbours yet again. Frederick had had enough and in 1162 he besieged the city into starvation and submission and when he successfully received the keys to the city ceremonially he destroyed 80% of it. Milan was no longer a threat to its neighbours but now it was reduced to the same fate as its neighbours and that was to be subject to the same constraints laid upon it by Frederick Barbarossa with high taxes and commercial restrictions. Without a strong Milan, the economy and military strength of Lombardy was no competition for their German overlords. So envoys and delegates from northern Italy agreed to meet in Bergamo in 1167 and decided to form an official alliance that would collectively defend their lands from German aggressions, and this we can refer to as the Lombard League. It was agreed that the priority of the League should be to rebuild Milan and restore some commercial and military power to the area. Cities had to choose whether they would stand with the League or operate against the League, alongside rival cities such as Pavia. Most of them joined the League and it would also have the support of the Pope Alexander III. As time went by, others would see the advantage of opposing Frederick too, including Venice, Sicily and Constantinople. So the Lombard League would now have international support against Frederick Barbarossa. Frederick Barbarossa Two of the more powerful noble families to emerge within the Kingdom of Germany during the 11th century were the Hohenstaufen and the Welf. One member of the Hohenstaufen family was Frederick the One-Eyed and he would inherit the Duchy of Swabia from his father. A marriage was organised between Frederick and the daughter of the Duke of Bavaria and a member of the Welf dynasty, Judith. This would strengthen ties between the two wealthy families and the firstborn in 1122 was called Frederick and this baby would eventually become the King of Germany known to history as Frederick Barbarossa. Despite this marriage alliance, the two houses of Hohenstaufen and Welf continued to rival each other for the crown of Germany. Frederick the One-Eyed and his brother Conrad of the Hohenstaufens were keen to try to remove their dynastic rival Lothair III, King of Germany and of Italy, from the throne. After Lothair's death, it would be Conrad, brother of Frederick the One-Eyed and uncle of Frederick Barbarossa, who would be elected to the throne, where he would rule as Conrad III. Frederick Barbarossa would become the Duke of Swabia in the following decade after his father's death in 1147 
and he would immediately show an interest in accompanying his uncle, Conrad III, on crusade during the Second Crusade. Conrad's crusade was quite unsuccessful, with him being defeated by the Seljuk Turks in Anatolia. Conrad was forced to retreat to Outremer, where the crusaders attempted a desperate siege of Damascus that failed and signalled the end of this particular crusade in the Holy Land. Frederick Barbarossa came back from the Second Crusade with a glowing reference, however, as a capable young man with a brave spirit. Conrad would actually select Frederick to be his successor, and he became King Frederick I of Germany in 1152. Frederick would be invited by the Pope to make war with the Normans of Sicily, but the papacy had other problems with a secular uprising called the Commune of Rome in the city of Rome, challenging the authority of the papacy. The Pope would encourage Frederick to support his cause, and this would lead to him being crowned the King of Italy and the Holy Roman Emperor. During his time in Italy, he campaigned against many Italian cities, and this would lead to the Italians calling him Frederick Barbarossa, in reference to his red beard. Frederick's aggressive behaviour led to the Pope becoming increasingly concerned about his ultimate goals and his desire to be viewed as the sole ruler of the Roman world led to a division between him and Constantinople, a city that also regarded itself as the successors of the glorious classical Romans. With the Pope now choosing to befriend the King of Sicily, Frederick's traditional enemy, it would ignite a political fire between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. Each entity believed that the other ought to be subject to the other. Frederick Barbarossa stepped up his campaigns against the Italians, who actually felt empowered by the moral support of the Pope. But Frederick stepped up his aggressions and this included the destruction of Milan, as mentioned earlier in the episode. Guido de Ladriano Very little is known about Guido de Ladriano, but we do know that he was an Italian military statesman who was an experienced consul of the city of Milan, and as a consequence, he would often find himself at odds with the imperial forces of Frederick Barbarossa of Germany, periodically from the 1150s. He was entrusted with the command of the Lombard League's forces when things came to a head during the mid-1170s. Pope Alexander III Alexander was from Siena and was well educated and he was able to escalate the ranks in Rome to become an important member of the papal court during the pontificate of Eugene III, the Pope who instigated the Second Crusade. Alexander would act as the senior liaison officer between the papacy and the King Frederick Barbarossa, but he would also be very wary of Frederick's expansionist attitude in Italy. When Alexander became the Pope in 1159, he would find that he would have anti-popes propped up in order to oppose him, 
and he would not have the favour of Frederick, resulting in him spending lengthy periods of time in exile to avoid him being overthrown by an antipope or his supporters. As a result, Alexander felt drawn to the plight of Milan and its allies within the Lombard League. Prelude to the Battle Frederick Barbarossa had a force of around 2,000 elite knights in northern Italy. He would send for reinforcements from Germany in the form of heavy cavalry so that he may launch an attack on the town of Alessandria. Alessandria is situated about 50 miles to the southwest of Milan. The Lombard League were aware that Frederick was planning something big and they would not wait around to find out what. Despite the fact that the Lombard League had amassed over 10,000 troops to defend the territories of northern Italy, Frederick had the benefit of having the most elite and highly trained knights, so even though Frederick's troops numbered only around a quarter of the Lombard League's troops, their military expertise more than made up for that deficit. So it was not unreasonable for Frederick to expect to win. To further explain this, it is important to imagine this line-up of heavily armoured cavalry equipped with weapons such as lances. The equipment, armour and battle tactics would have been finely honed through years of expertise, training and experience. The force of such a heavy cavalry charge would have been considerable, even for an army far greater in numbers without the luxury of the armour and weapons of the same quality. The Lombard League's troops would head north to set up a camp within a pass between two rivers that Frederick would have to use in order to continue with his campaign. The Lombard League would pick a strategically advantageous location just north of Legnano, which would hamper the manoeuvrability of the German heavy cavalry and they would set up a defensive arc of spearmen to prevent the advancing cavalry. The arc would surround a corroccio. The corroccio was quite a common thing for Italian forces during this period. They were four-wheeled wagons bearing the flags and banners of the city that it represented, and in this case it was Milan. Some sources say that the cross of the 11th century Archbishop of Milan, Aribert, was on the corroccio, while others state that an image of the 4th century Bishop of Milan, St Ambrose, was also prominently visible. Almost simultaneously, a concession of 300 vanguard cavalry was sent by Frederick to monitor the situation in front of them, while around 700 of the cavalry from the Lombard League rode north to establish Frederick's whereabouts. The two vanguards would find each other. The Battle of Legnano when the 300 German cavalry clashed with the 700 Lombard League reconnaissance cavalry, they would soon come to understand that they were outnumbered. The German vanguard saw fit to retreat back to Frederick's main group and the Lombard League cavalry decided to pursue them. 
Inevitably, the Lombard League cavalry would stumble across the full German military headed by King Frederick Barbarossa himself. After some form of engagement, the Lombard League cavalry decided that it was their turn to retreat back to their main encampment and Frederick Barbarossa ordered a pursuit. This may have been exactly what the Lombard League were hoping for as they had set themselves up in a position where the German knights would have restricted movement. The Lombard League cavalry actually headed back towards Milan, leaving the bulk of the army at Legnano. Some of the cavalry at Legnano had dismounted to join the ranks of the infantry as they witnessed this incredible sight of 3,000 of Europe's finest knights emerge as Frederick opted to attack the defenders of the Carroccio. The Lombard League certainly had knights among its own ranks, but Frederick Barbarossa's knights would have been an intimidating sight for the Lombard League, despite the Lombard League having superior numbers. The goal of Frederick Barbarossa would be to destroy the sacred Milanese Carroccio of the Lombard League and destroy the spirit of the Northern Italian City Alliance. The Lombard League would settle into formation in order to defend the Corocho. Their strategy was much like that of a phalanx formation with possibly half a dozen layers of spearmen, the front two rows of which were settled behind shields with their spears protruding from the tightly packed shields and the row right at the front kneeling low so that two rows of spears could emerge at the front of the defence. When Frederick Barbarossa arrived at this defensive formation, he would attempt to be measured in his approach. Initially, it was the morning and Frederick would order attacks on the Lombard League defences. The defences remained unmoved and rigid. So Frederick withdrew and re-strategised in order to make another attack and endeavour to find a weakness in the ranks in order to break through and cause chaos among the otherwise well-organised Lombard League ranks. Frederick would repeat the tactic and be met with stern resistance once again and would once again have to retreat and regroup. Most of the day was spent this way with the Germans attacking the Italians. The Germans was certainly making some impact on the Italian ranks, but it was not enough to create a breach. The day was becoming old, and the Germans were running out of time, but some reports state that the Germans may have worn down over half of the Lombard League ranks, so things may have become very anxious indeed for the defenders. It was at this point that a pivotal moment occurred. Before the main engagement of the battle took place, some of the knights of the Lombard League staged a reconnaissance but were chased away and they fled in the direction of Milan. It turned out that they were fleeing to Milan with the purpose to notify more troops that the attack on the Carroccio was imminent and so the Lombard League knights returned to the battle scene alongside some cavalry from Brescia, and upon their arrival, they would attack Frederick Barbarossa's forces from the flank and from the rear. This caused alarm among the tired German knights who were thrown into a state of disorder 
by this surprise attack. All of the German knights had to engage in battle, including Frederick himself. Many of his elite guards were killed around him, and Frederick's own horse was mortally wounded, which sent Frederick tumbling down. With the German standard bearer already flawed, the German knights could see no sign of the German standard and no sign of their king. This was enough for them to beat a hasty retreat. Some of the German knights were driven in the direction of the river Ticino, where they met with a watery end. Aftermath There are no records of the losses in numbers, but when we consider all of the information that has led to the story that we tell today, it seems apparent that both sides suffered heavy losses. Frederick Barbarossa actually did escape this battle. In the aftermath, he was never really able to impose his will on the cities of northern Italy in the same way ever again. This was an incredibly proud moment for the Milanese and all of the very many other cities of the Lombard League. The Kingdom of Germany had cast a dark shadow across the Kingdom of Italy ever since the days of Otto the Great when he subjugated the Italians and consumed it into the acknowledged Holy Roman Empire. Now the Kingdom of Italy had demonstrated to itself that it did have the ability to stand up against this dominant German kingdom and this created a great sense of national pride. The Lombard League did not break away from the Holy Roman Empire, but Frederick had to acknowledge its existence and had to pay respect to the manner in which he treated the cities that belonged to it. The relationship between the two had to be somewhat respectful. The same should also be said of Frederick's attitude towards the papacy. With Alexander III being opposed to Frederick's will, Frederick had originally tried to support antipopes against Alexander. Now Frederick had to acknowledge the Pope or lose the confidence of many. Frederick may have wanted to attack northern Italy again after the Battle of Legnano, but the German knights would have been highly unnerved by what transpired and would have been reluctant to support another similar campaign. There was still a strong sentiment for the Holy Roman Empire within the city of Rome itself, so even though the Pope Alexander III was under less pressure directly from Frederick Barbarossa, he would still be at the centre of opposing views. Those who supported the Pope, which included those who belonged to the Lombard League, would be categorised as the Guelphs whereas their opponents and supporters of the Holy Roman Empire would be categorised as Ghibellines, and tensions between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines would escalate and cause problems in northern Italy for the next 200 years. Alexander died in 1181. The commander of the Lombard League was Guido de Landriano, and after this battle it appears that he retired from military duties, and took up political duties until 1190, when he disappears from history. A century and a half after the battle, a Dominican friar called Galvano Fiamma names a man called Alberto da Gisano as an important leader of the Lombard League army. 
but even his very existence has been brought into question by historians. It was in the year 1190 that King Frederick I of Germany, known to us here as Frederick Barbarossa, died while in the Middle East during the period of the Third Crusade after falling into a river and drowning while in his late 60s. The victory at Legnano was a great victory for a politically inferior coalition of Italian cities in the face of a mightily powerful imperial movement from the Kingdom of Germany. During the 19th century, the revered Italian statesman Giuseppe Garibaldi referenced the Battle of Legnano as a great symbolic victory for the Italian people while he was helping to steer the Kingdom of Italy into and through its earliest years of unified independence which turned Italy into the likes of the country that we know today. During the Italian national anthem, a direct reference to the victory at Lignano is within the words, demonstrating that it is a go-to event when encouraging Italians to maintain their national pride. The legacy of Lignano is embraced by Italians as one of their great historical national events that demonstrated the proud resolve of the Italian people. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Battle of Legnano, a very important story uh, about a crusader king, Frederick Barbarossa, and uh, the a very proud moment, very very important moment in the Uh, history of Italy, really a sort of a time of turning the corner when the Italian peninsula was so ravaged by uh, the aftermath of the fall of the Western Roman Empire and all the wars that took place on that peninsula in the aftermath. We can now see the Italian peninsula starting to rise in prominence again and uh, become something significant. So after many centuries, a, a moment of glory for the Italians uh, on the Italian peninsula so a uh, good episode to to uh, to cover there and uh, thank you so much for listening very kind of you to listen to this week's episode the ancient world cup so uh, as we say every week for those of you who don't know what the ancient world cup is it's a web-based competition where we have 64 ancient World Cup teams. Uh, We've uh, created 64 teams based on societies of years gone by and uh, each week we have a voting voting competition whereby uh, we find out which team advances and which team gets knocked out. So we knock out a team every week until we get to a grand final. But at the moment we're in the round of 16. So we've got um, we've got uh, 16 teams left with in in this round and we've already eliminated two of those teams and uh, this week was the third match of the round and it was between the Babylonians and the ancient Egyptians uh, so one of the real heavyweights of the competition uh, a team that many hot welders uh, tip up to be uh, at least the finalist, if not the winner of the whole thing, the, the ancient Egyptians. But how did the Babylonians get on against them this week? Well, there was a very good turnout um, in the voting. So we had uh, a total of 69 votes, which is a good healthy number for our competition. Um, the team who advanced uh, 
to the quarterfinals. Uh, it would be no surprise with 67% with the ancient Egyptians. So we say goodbye to the Babylonians, that great long, sort of millennium long uh, legacy that they left us from Hammurabi right through to the uh, right through to the destruction of the, the great temple of, uh, of, of Jerusalem, um, Solomon's temple, I should say. And um, that's it for them. So that away they go. Um, and next week, we're staying very much in that area of the world, the Near East. Um, next week's match will be with the Sumerians uh, playing the Phoenicians to find out who our fourth quarter finalist um, and uh, complete the quarterfinal lineup for the top half of the draw. Um, so this will be the opponents for the ancient Egyptians in the quarterfinals, the winner between the Sumerians and the Phoenicians. Of course, the Sumerians, um, very popular actually, the Sumerians, um, with their... Um, with their sort of legacy as being the first major empire, I would say, or the first major society that the world recognises, um, and certainly of Mesopotamia as well. So they're very responsible for ushering in that era of um, sort of um, writing and that that modern society feeling uh, that we that we can recognise through excavations and and even through writing. Um, with their uh, cuneiform writing style that we can sort of tell a story of their history. So one of the most oldest, one of the oldest societies um, of who we can refer to, the Sumerians. The, and they'll be going up against the Phoenicians who were the, really, the real sort of uh, beneficiaries of the late Bronze Age collapse. They were the ones who took advantage of that void in the world to be able to create uh, an extensive trade network and basically get the world moving again. Now, if it weren't for the Phoenicians, then um, the new societies of the first millennium BCE maybe wouldn't have risen up so quickly. So um, the Phoenicians, very important, of course, they were the Phoenicians were, of course, the, uh, they created Carthage and uh, were subsequently the, uh, the ancestral race of the Carthaginians. So a battle of two really uh, significant teams there, the Sumerians versus the Phoenicians. But if you'd like to vote for either of those teams, then keep an eye out from Monday on the Facebook page for the History of the World podcast. Um, the the unofficial Facebook fan group, uh, which is run by Jenna Osborne, which you can also find on Facebook. Uh, Instagram, find the History of the World podcast on Instagram. And uh, Twitter, so follow the Twitter feed. So um, you can find all the links to those pages on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website. And you can also find the World Cup draw. So you can actually find out what the competition is all about, who's in it and what stage we're at. So uh, go and visit the historyoftheworldpodcast.com web pages to find out more. Listener messages and reviews. Now, while you're visiting the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, you can also sign up to make a monthly contribution to the web page, uh, to the to the podcast, I should say. Um, and uh, you'll do that by clicking on the Patreon link and becoming a History of the World podcast Illuminati member for life. A very proud distinction. And um, we have loads of History of the World podcast Illuminati members, and they're all qualifying for gifts and. Uh, 
those of you who have qualified for gifts, just check your email inbox. You should have an invitation to uh, either provide me with the information that I require in order to send you the gift or in order to present the gift uh, if it's indeed a live mention or a question or a podcast episode that you've commissioned. So uh, keep your eyes open for the email inbox as well. We're uh, we tend to send them out in batches, so if you've been, if you feel like you've been waiting a while for your gift, it's probably just uh, around the corner that it's going to be due to send to be sent out. So sometimes we'll we'll send that amount in batches, maybe three or four times each year. So uh, just be patient, and you will definitely get your History of the World podcast gifts. Um, we got a uh, an email uh, from uh, one of our uh, History of the World podcast patrons. Um, and I'll read that out for you now. Amardeep Dagar has uh, sent me a message from Manila uh, in the Philippines and said, um, Hi Chris, I received an email notification regarding a special episode reward. I'm on volume three currently and loving it. I'm not sure if this topic has already been discussed in future volumes. However, the history, evolution of religion has always fascinated me. I'm very curious about how and when Homo sapiens came up with God's religions to make sense of things. Thinking about the world, say, from a Neanderthal or an early Homo sapiens perspective, it only seems fair to look for a supernatural explanation for natural processes. However, what I find incredible is humans' continued reliance on belief systems. Looking forward to hearing from you. Well, that, what a very well-written uh, message, uh, Amardeep. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I'm sure that it's something we can, uh, we can look at. I mean, we certainly looked at... Um, the spiritual side of uh, ancient rituals during volume one, but I didn't I don't think we really sort of discussed it with a view to discussing the future religions. So it's certainly something we can do and uh, we'll, you know, hopefully turn volume one into a 25 episode volume instead of uh, the 24 episode volume, which it is at the moment. But uh, any, uh, there are a couple more of you who've, um, requested special episodes such as uh, the sea dogs of uh, Queen Elizabeth I and uh, uh, talk about the um, the Easy Company which uh, inspired the HBO series uh, Band of Brothers. So there we have a couple of um, or, or a few episodes that uh, will come uh, during 2023. So thank you to everyone for these wonderful suggestions that you've made. Um, and looking forward to uh, reading and writing about them and then ultimately presenting them to you. Um, review this week, we had Samid227 uh, from the United States of America's but top shelf history podcast. Very informative and passionate about the subject matter, non-biased in area of ambiguity and religion. Very good history podcast, highly recommended. Also, I can understand the accent very easily, so don't feel too bad. Well, thank you very much for that. Samid um, and that's it for this week next week we're going to be talking about the Reconquista and uh, we'll also be talking about El Cid so uh, if any of you remember the Charlton Heston film um, that will be the subject of next week's podcast episode following on from the Visigothic Kingdom and uh, the uh, the foundation of Al-Andalus, the Muslim state in uh, in the Iberian Peninsula, and the story that follows on from that and brings us up into the 
uh, the, the earliest centuries of the Reconquista. That will be next week. So thank you so much for listening this week. And until next week, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.